Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us again, extra special guest, Inaya Follerin Iman. <laughs> Hi. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the return of Donald Trump, the war in Ukraine, Baby 8 Billion and Nicola Sturgeon's trans crusade. So Donald Trump is back. Tom, are you on the Trump train? Are you excited about the return of, it's not just MAGA now, it's Make America Great and Glorious and Glorious, I guess. Again. What was that, MAGA or something? I don't yeah. know. Um, well, you do get the feeling, you know, looking at that big event at Florida, that he is sort of yesterday's man, mm. really. Um, and I don't mean that to be sort of dismissive. What I mean that is to say that um, the idea that populism in America lives or dies whether or not Trump is running, I think has always been a bit of a nonsense. Yeah. Um, and I think we're at the point where essentially the Trump train such as it is, is just it's just run out of steam, if to stretch the metaphor. Um, and there's obvious reasons for that. You know, I think there has been a sort of tendency on the part of um, sort of commentators, as we were talking about, to sort of like act as if the two are sort of joined together, that the decision of people back in 2016 to kind of hit out of the establishment, mm. so on and so forth, that this is basically just a Trump thing. As soon as Trump is defeated, it will go away. So it's kind of uh, interest on both sides and sort of perpetuating that particular myth. But at the same time, it's quite clear that the public's patience with him has run out, even though a lot of those feelings of being ignored by the establishment, of the establishment kind of pushing mad ideologies down their throats is only intensified under Joe Biden. They just don't see Trump as the figure to push that through. You see it's like 65% of Americans don't even want him to run again, which is about the same as people who don't actually want Joe Biden yeah. to run again. And I think particularly after all of the stop the steal madness mm. um, towards the end of his presidency, any claim he might once have had to being that sort of like tribune for democratic revolt was just completely eviscerated. He was always a slightly odd proposition. That was the point in which the, the wheels really fell off. And I think in a way the polls and everything else speak for themselves insofar as he's not going to be the person who pushes this forward. He was a sort of blunt instrument that was used mm. to hit back at the establishment, but there were problems with that project from the off. And I think those are just even more glaring now that he's announcing again, really. Yeah, and I, I mean, do you see it that way that kind of maybe in 2016 there could have been something positive about this reaction, but now it's just got a bit weird. Mm -hmm. January the 6th, election denial, as you suggested, Tom, some of the odd candidates he picked for the midterms. Yeah. No, I think, um, as Tom kind of said, I think many of the uh, issues that gave rise to Trump in many ways still exist. You know, the contemptuous attitude towards huge ways of the American population. Uh, as Tom said, uh, again, you know, many of these identity-based uh, ideologies uh, anti-democratically being pushed to the majority uh, of the population and you know, a demonization of those who, who disagree. And it was those conditions and the kind of inability to find a vehicle to express those frustrations, which mm. um, gave rise to Trump. And I, I guess, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, in that context, it almost seemed that there was only only someone like Trump could have really, you know, risen because yeah. the 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 way that the establishment at that time were were so um, 
vilifying anyone that disagreed meant that only a kind of bumbling, aggressive character that's willing to shake everything up um, could actually withstand that. But as we've now seen, you know, five years uh, plus later, um, that did not in very, in any way at all, really uh, resolve uh, those issues and expose uh, many of the flaws that uh, is well documented uh, that he had. And I think it is very sad that um, that spirit, that yeah. kind of radical democratic spirit um, it is still needs a vehicle. But um, the person that many people had put their hopes into has not only failed to deliver, but actually making it much worse. Yeah, and and Tom arguably, arguably, you know, the public were the deplorables back mm. in 2016. Now they're domestic terrorists. Yeah. So the need for a pushback is is you know clearly there. No, it's gotten more and more extreme, and it's gotten more and more extreme in the in the wake of the Trump era, not because of him, but because of the reaction to him. You know, mm. the wild over uh, overreaction to him. You know, the basically this is fascism on the march, and so on and so forth. I mean, the whole Joe Biden rhetoric around the MAGA Republicans and domestic yeah. terrorism. Um, is really that kind of anti-anti-Trumpism on steroids. You know, it's really authoritarian. It's deeply anti-democratic. Um, I often say it's about Trump. You might do some authoritarian, anti-democratic things. But the kind of establishment often in response to him sort of show him how it's done. And I think mm. what we're seeing at the moment is a, is a good example of that. FBI agents being sent after parents in the parents movement and all this, <laughs> the rest of it is really quite sinister. Yeah. But as we've been as we've been saying, all of that is quite real. Um, and there's so much that happened in the course of the past years, which, yes, was a product of that kind of elite overreaction. Um, but at the same time, there is this sort of fundamental problem with Trump mm. was that as soon as he got elected, there was his uh, flaws were so brilliantly exposed. There was yeah. always a kind of an element, an element that people could kind of project onto him. He was, by dint of being an outsider, he was one of the only people who could sort of see the gap in mm. politics that existed that he could knock through the orthodoxies of both the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, he would talk about social security and healthcare in a way that upset the sort of Paul Ryan Republican set, whilst also, you know, breaking every kind of speech code of the left and yeah, all the rest yeah. of it. He yeah. sort of cut through in that sense. People liked the fact that he was aggressive and pushing back. But as soon as he gets in power, not only does he get mired in pushing back against all these attempts to topple him, not only does it increasingly become all about him, but there is a sort of sense that beyond building that wall and going after China, he didn't really know what to do yeah. with it. And he ended yeah. up just filling the gap with a lot of elite Republican sort of slurry, really, which mm. would have been in place regardless of who ended up being president. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, the challenge for populists now, or, or radical Democrats, is a kind of liberal populism, not one that's just um, simply you know, contemptuous of all institutions and and very angry and aggressive whilst there's like very, you know, righteous anger and frustration. I think actually maybe re-articulating kind of populism that still upholds many of the liberal values that that we hold dear. Free speech, especially. Trump was always been a bit of a snowflake. Mm. Yeah. Not a fan of democracy as we exactly. as we <laughs> <laughs> well, quite... <laughs> He's like a Ramona, he likes it when he goes his way. But yeah. I mean, you know, the the We'll, we'll always have the laughs, yeah. I think is the main mm, thing to say definitely. about Definitely. Trump's he, greatest tweeter. And he, it the world's was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it was. And he, in a way, he did the world a great service in exposing how deeply anti-democratic the mm. American elite is. But, you know, he was always, to put it very lightly, an imperfect vessel mm. of what was interesting about that election, you know. Mm. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on to talk a bit about the war in Ukraine. It feels like we almost got away with, or we just there could have been a chance for quite a serious escalation. Um, the newspapers reported uh, things as if there had been an escalation. So when um, a, few, a missile, a stray missile hit Poland, we were told that Russia had attacked us. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit mm. about this? No, this was, uh, I can imagine a lot of people sort of following it quite um, nervously on social media on Tuesday night, because you saw this uh, sort of one-line report ring out across the place, which was that some US official had um, briefed someone that a Russian missile had hit Poland about four miles from the Ukrainian border, that two people had very tragically died. Um, and suddenly, you know, Twitter was abuzz with all of the... It's a kind of combination of sort of fear, but also kind of excited anticipation that yeah. this might finally be the one. Uh, I think a lot of that bled into and coloured a lot of the reporting. I mean, some of the front pages, certainly in the UK on the Wednesday morning, were all more or less saying a variation on Russia bombs Poland, mm. Russian mm. missile hits Poland... There was really no pause to try and get some more detail, not least because, as we all know, in the fog of war, who knows really what's going on at any particular point. And yet, since then, we've seen the US, the Polish government, NATO, say that what they think has happened here is that this was a Ukrainian missile that was obviously trying to intercept Russian fire that went askew. It's worth pointing out that um, the Ukrainian government maintains that it wasn't a Ukrainian missile and they want it investigated and so on and so forth but it's still really painted to the fact pointed to the fact that you know there is almost a kind of sense of glee at escalation on the part of the yeah. western media a lot of very irresponsible reporting to be frank mm. um and a lack of recognition that whilst you know a lot of these people might think in sort of retweets and likes and clicks the stakes are really quite high here and you are do you really want to be in a situation where you're misrepresenting at least what the official line is uh just because you're desperate to sort of titillate people really that's what i think it there was that moment where you just really felt like our, our media are not really cut out for, for moments as serious as this mm. yeah and and world war three being the sort of ultimate titillation the ultimate mm. you know mm. oh that wouldn't that be funny type thing yeah i mean it, there does seem to be a really big you know crisis of of foreign reporting and international reporting where um the nuances and complexities of various different international conflicts are, are take a secondary priority mm. to um the the kind of drama that um, can be uh, retweeted and shared on social media and i remember just a few years ago we were speaking about trump just just a moment ago when um there was the uh, killing of of Soleimani yeah. um and and everyone you know ramped that up very quickly on social media thinking that that was going to be world war 3 and everything yeah. and loads of people were very panicked and then that kind of died down very quickly and actually that's an incredibly serious, it should, is an obvious point to make, but that's such a serious thing um, claim to make, which can actually um, massively ramp up tensions, cloud mm. the judgment of, of people that are actually trying to negotiate and, and deal with these issues um, with that kind of pressure. And I think just the, the, the reality of conflict, the seriousness of it and what's at stake um, is increasingly lost in our conversations and discourse about it. And I think that's really dangerous. We should talk a little bit about... Um you know, where the war is going and, and some of the good news, particularly the liberation of Kherson, which, you know, caught a lot of people by surprise. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Tom, that's a very sort of positive aspect of the Ukrainians fighting back. No, definitely. It's um, arguably the most sort of symbolic victory yet, as mm. well as a significant regaining of territory. Um, this was the only regional capital that um, Russia was maintaining. It was also in a broader region, which had, what was it, about six, seven weeks ago, was yeah. effectively annexed by Russia after these sham referendums. So mm. the level of humiliation is really um, quite striking. And it seems like even going into the winter when everyone expected things to slow down, or at least it, or still expects things to slow down, there's still a hell of a lot of like momentum mm behind Ukraine's side. And just if you do cast your mind back, even pretty pro-Ukraine people and commentators were not expecting things to pan out like this. Yeah. You know, It really does pay testament to the determination of, of, of this nation to defend itself, of its people really rallying around that particular cause of um, very solid leadership, although that's obviously been called into question over the course of the last couple of days in relation to this strike, which we should probably get into briefly. But, you know, if you think about where we started, where um, it's almost like the complete inverse of what happened in Afghanistan. They yeah. thought that had gone for quite some time. It was over, <laughs> yeah. you know, by tea time. Yeah. Whereas in the case of this, they thought, again, right, we're better off a Zelensky an airlift out because this is only going one way. And yet, what, nine months later or whatever it is, we're in a situation where they're retaking, you know, swathes of territory. It's really, really quite inspiring. Yeah, what was it, 48 hours the US intelligence services mm. were giving, you know, until essentially Kiev fell? Mm. <laughs> when Russia invaded? Yeah, so, you know, it, it is remarkable. And I think as we've spoken about before and many people have said it is a testament to just the extraordinary bravery and courage of of you the Ukrainian people and that sovereignty is something you know worth fighting for and upholding and I think it, it is very uh, frustrating when uh, you see some of the discourse on the more extreme ends of the kind of left and right that are always trying to find like an excuse to no longer support Ukraine yeah. or yeah. to you know no longer uh really believe in their capacity to actually uh, maintain the existence of their society when yeah. they are continually proving wrong that when given the necessary support to do so, that they they can and will succeed. Mm. And that's really important. And the, the Afghanistan comparison is really useful because, you know, the Afghan army had... So it was very tooled up yeah. with American weapons. And now the Taliban. Is. And now that now the Taliban has them. <laughs> yeah. But it really it's it's not just the weapons. It is yeah. about the willingness mm. of those people to mm. fight for their to fight to reclaim their territory. Mm -hmm. We should yeah. just quickly about the Zelensky stuff, because yeah. that's also because obviously this particular you know, the past forty eight hours or so have exposed some fault lines between Ukraine and the West, not just on this particular strike, but also there's always been obviously it's um always been something that Zelensky has been pushing for more direct NATO yeah. involvement. And for obvious reasons, a lot of people in the West don't see the wisdom of that, of, of, of risking broadening the theatre of the war and dragging in other countries of starting World War Three. That's always been a tension. But it's interesting. And also there are conflicting reports as to what happened. And we'll find out in the fullness of time what actually did happen on the Polish-Ukrainian border, I'm sure, at some point. But it's interesting. I think the response from certain voices now is purely they're just looking for an excuse to say well this was all just mm. a con wasn't it mm. yeah. well he's obviously a bastard isn't he mm. and whilst yes there is this quite cloying kind of lionization turning Zelensky into a sort of saint in certain quarters he's of no political leader is sinner or saint in that it's not yeah. a, this isn't a simplistic kind of morality play that we're talking about here there is this desperation and often quite a conspiratorial tendency yeah. to wait for the moment to see it was all a con or see he's just trying to start World War 3 or yeah. see they should just give up. That's usually the end point of what mm -hmm. it is that they're saying. Mm -hmm. and I feel like this particular moment has um, just drawn all that out and people mm -hmm. present it as scepticism. I think it's just, again, another expression, that sort of cynicism that a lot of people have in relation to Ukraine in this conflict since the beginning, really. 
Yeah, just just quickly to add to that, I completely agree. And I think um, it, it does show that it, it is unfortunate as well how um, the the uh, rightful uh, scepticism of what happened um, during the lockdown and a lot of the issues around that, many of those same people have kind of failed to see how different issues require different yeah. approaches and thinking. And I do think that there is a danger of that, that kind of lockdown scepticism being... Uh, projected onto mm. all issues which makes us well, less some able think it's the same issue well, exactly. <laughs> it's a continuation I, of it exactly and i think we need to be able to differentiate and be able to make mm. judgments on its own terms of these different issues so let's talk about something that we would see as unequivocally good news this week the un has declared the day of eight billion so in theory the kind of eight billionth person mm. uh, on the planet has has joined us so we've we've smashed through that ma massive population milestone now no this is obviously good news it's obviously a sign that despite all the doom and gloom out there the world is a good place to live surely mm. i mean it's interesting that when you look at many of the reasons that drive uh, uh, the the planet's population to boom. It's for example, one of them is uh, a, a reduction in infant mortality. For yeah. example, you know many of the kids that otherwise uh, would have died because mm. of the uh, horrible sanitary conditions or or the fact that there wasn't enough food are now surviving yeah. because of development. You know mm. that is surely a positive thing. And oftentimes, actually, um, in countries as they develop, um, as women get more educated, yeah. then. Um, a lot of those societies then have less children mm. because of people's priorities changing. So oftentimes it increases then, then, and then plateaus. And actually what we're seeing in many um, very developed countries like Japan and Germany and so on, it's actually uh, decreasing. So yeah. when you look at it from a broader perspective, um, it's not really a problem. And actually a lot of the time the planet population levels out, but it really just reveals that... Um, many of the uh, attitudes around this is really driven by this this vicious anti-humanism yeah. you know as we've spoken about many times before that human beings are the problem and that they are some kind of uh, uh, cancerous force on the planet draining its resources yeah. I mean, that that is a, a horrible horrible way to look at people but that's that's a view that's been expressed um, notably in the Guardian mm. article mm. tweeted by Caroline Lucas the mm. Green Party mm. co-leader you know, saying why can't why can't we talk about why eight billion people is a problem? But it's mm. not a problem. No, it's not a problem. It's it's fantastic. It's yeah. brilliant. More people, the merrier, as far as mm. I'm concerned. And you know, time and time again, humanity has proven those fear mongers wrong. You know, if you think about how much the population has expanded over what feels like quite quite a short space of time, really, yeah. it was like 1900, roughly speaking. It was like 1.8 billion people or a bit less than that i think um you know as of 2011 it was 7 billion, yeah. billion people and you know in that short space of time we've seen even more people added to the sort of teeming masses of the planet At every step along the way of this there's been someone saying we're all about to die like mm. we're about to run out. you know paul mm. ehrlich in the population mm. bomb book yeah. in 1968 uh, effectively saying that you know there's going to be mass starvation in quite short order yeah and yet, you know, over the past 25 years, like more than a billion people have been lifted out of poverty, you know, uh, again, development and economic growth, particularly in areas of the world that hadn't yet experienced that kind of thing, has been able to provide for these huge swathes of people. And it's interesting because the environmentalists for a while went a bit quiet about the population control stuff, yeah. mm. um, not least because it has a very unpleasant aspect to it and history. You know, it's, it's also 
often sees even some of the contemporary environmentalists tumble into something like racism when they start yeah. pontificating about there being too many people in Africa mm. and so on and so forth. Um, but it's it the always comes of back. China one child policy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was Attenborough, I think, that had qualified yes. praise for, at one point for the, for the one God. child policy, which tells you everything you need to know. But they kind of go quiet about it. And they tend to kind of say, well, the problem really is consumption. It's the people at the top who are consuming so much as if the people who are just lifting themselves out of extreme poverty shouldn't enjoy a nice life. It it doesn't really add up. But they do, they have kept quiet about it. But what I thought was interesting about that Guardian article doing the rounds was that at the bottom, this is what they believe. Surely more people, more consumption, Mm. more of those evil carbon emissions, and therefore we're all going to hell in a handcart. So that that anti-humanism, that misanthropy is always there uh they've just kept quiet about it for a while but yeah. of course this is what they think because they do primarily see humanity as you were saying and i as, as, a, as a drain yeah. as a problem yeah or they'll call it overconsumption. Overconsumption yeah. is the problem not overpopulation mm. but then what's the right level of consumption it, how poor should someone stay and who's going to force them to be that poor yeah it is completely illogical but i mean just, but it also is just factually doesn't really stack up. I mean, it, it seems if you look at the trends in a lot of Western countries that the problem is going to be too few people, not mm. too many. That actually that, you know, when it comes to reproducing, you know, the workforce and actually productive um, population, that it's actually decreasing. Um, and so I, I think that on all of their own terms, that yeah. they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're usually wrong about everything. That's, that's a regular theme in this, on this show. Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike Supporters is our thriving donor community. And if you're a Spike supporter, you can get access to a whole range of extra perks. And I've got an incredibly special one I want to tell you about. On Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm London time, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill show. And it's exclusive to Spike supporters. You'll be able to watch the recording online, Plus, we'll also be taking audience questions. So if you're already a Spike supporter, why not claim your free ticket now via the Spike supporters hub? If you're not a Spike supporter yet, then now is the time to sign up. For as little as £5 or more per month, you can become a Spike supporter, then you can sign up to this free event. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to sign up now. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. See you there. So finally, let's turn to Nicola Sturgeon's kind of, I, th- I think it's fair to call it a crusade. Mm. She's probably the most vociferous trans activist uh, north of the border. She doesn't seem to be bothered that her kind of policy, her self-ID policy is wildly unpopular, and yet mm. she's pressing on. It's provoked the largest backbench rebellion, rebellion in the history of this SNP Scottish government, mm. and yet she persists. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like, you know, she, Nicola Sturgeon's SNP just uses uh, Scotland as a kind of test, test case for petty authoritarianism. I mean, when you have the, you know, the Scottish hate crime bill and mm. there was previously the, the law that was revoked where every child had um, their own, you know, person. Name person. Yeah, the name, name yeah, person. person. Yeah. Exactly. guardian. Exactly. The most, <laughs> Very creepy. Yeah, paternalistic <laughs> policy you can really think of. And now you've got um, the the all of the issues around uh, gender um, and, and gender self-identification. And I think 
it is great though in another way to see how many people in Scotland have really seen this issue as an issue that um, is at the top of the political agenda and mm. pushed back against it. But the implications are are huge, you know, yeah. whether that's in prisons, uh, whether that's in uh, refuges um, and even some of these stories that have come out about the complete skewing of statistics in relation to uh, patterns of criminal behaviour and so on. And all of this evidence that has been presented has been just utterly dismissed mm, yeah. and ignored. Um, it's deeply anti-democratic. Um, I think it's, I do think it is misogynistic and I don't use that word uh, lightly. And I think it, it, it's very sad. Yes, yeah, St- Surgeon said the critics or the criticism of the policy are not valid was her yeah. way of brushing it off. And it's interesting that she can continue on in the face of so much opposition. Mm. This gender recognition reform bill, which is going through, as you say, according to the opinion polls, not just like a slim majority, but a pretty solid majority of all voters oppose every bit of it, yeah. or every major bit of it, I should say. Mm. And it is, you know, if you think about what it's ushering in, particularly because it has, to the extent that it contrasts with um, England, it's really quite drastic. I mean, you're talking about anyone over the age of 16 or they have they don't need any uh, medical diagnosis of yeah. gender dysphoria in order to change their gender they don't have to live in their chosen gender if, if that's the right phrase for 2 years it can just be 3 months mm. interesting some of the debate this week which is going on in this committee meeting where a feminist wearing the suffragette colors was ejected <laughs> at one particular point um that was about whether or not the under, whether, whether or not um, younger people whether or not it should they should bump that up to 6 months wow. and you thought this is this is this is really quite significant part of the debate was also about the fact that someone raised the question about well what if someone on the sex offenders register wants mm. to do this? Yeah. And they were like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. You know, yeah. the, the level of unthinkingness, I think, is quite striking. And I don't mean to su- suggest that, um, you know, as you say, it has a kind of zeal and a crusade like to it. People must really deeply believe in it. But you do wonder with some of this stuff whether or not they have actually thought about it, whether, yeah. they, uh, whether they have actually even for a second entertained the contrary opinion. Because it's one of those areas in which someone like Nicola Sturgeon, who likes to present herself and kind of Scotland as the sort of, again, the such a much better moral alternative mm. to the rest of rotten Britain and yeah. England in particular, um, that there, there is an element about embracing this stuff as a giant virtue signal without mm. actually trying to think about the implications. Because as soon as you start thinking about the implications for women's sex-based rights, for the treatment of children, um, for the potential to really confuse and mess up a lot of young people who might just be gay or might be autistic, all these things which have been very well documented as mm. being a big crossover gender dysphoria. No, <laughs> not valid. Yeah. <laughs> You're all bigots, shut up. Yeah. And that, the fact that that can still carry on in the face of the level of public um, dissatisfaction as well as dissatisfaction with her, with her own party, I think is really quite striking. But it's the unthinkingness mm. of it that I find so striking. But you do, it's, it does just feel like it's part of that mm. SNP mission to try and differentiate themselves morally from the rest of the UK mm. or England, really. Yeah. Um, but that's leading them down, once again, a very, very dark alleyway. Yeah, I mean, and this is really at a time, I mean, there's still so much more uh, work to be done on it, but this is at a time where we are seeing the rise of, you know, detransitioners, you know, many uh, young people that are taking uh, the NHS and even the government in other countries to court for not actually asking them questions as to why they uh, put them on a pathway to irreversible, in many cases, medical treatment. Um, And the whole affirmation model, which, you know, has is morally objectionable in many ways is being questioned. And um, 
even the New York Times, many people have brought to its uh, attention the fact that for the first time it has actually been exploring whether or not there is significant harm, even though we all know that there is potential for harm uh, around puberty blockers. So it just seems, um, as Tom said, to very much be driven by to be seen um, as virtuous, even if it's leaving such a huge damage in the wake Mm. of that. Yeah, and Neil Davenport made this point in an article on Spike this week, which um, I thought really nailed it, which was the fact that it's interesting how, particularly to take someone like Scotland, you mentioned the name person scheme, you know, yeah. this kind of quite authoritarian pursuit mm-hmm. of child protection to the point where you're, assi- where, you know, you're talking about assigning a state guardian to every child. And yet when it comes to something like the trans issue, yeah. child protection services, you'd throw it under the bus. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Put them on these irreversible drugs. Do it. Yeah. We're good people. <laughs> don't think about it. Go. Don't ask, like, questions. Don't ask questions. It just really gives the lie to this idea that, that this is really a kind of caring ideology, whatever it is, the thing that we're, that we're dealing with. This desperation to sort of look good rather than actually do good mm. is at the root of a lot of problems, I think, that we're mm. facing, not just in Scotland, but in you know, the rest of the country at the moment. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.